Welcome to the Onyx Report, a program that critically analyzes the experiences, histories, and perceptions of black males in American society across age, class, region, sexuality, and profession. I'm your host, Dr. T. Hassan Johnson, Associate Professor of Africana Studies at Fresno State, black male studies scholar, and black male advocate. In the program, we examine current events and major issues using an empirically driven black masculinist theoretical lens, thus including such concepts as the black male dual economy, anti-black misandry, phallicism, the subordinate male target hypothesis, and the black dynarchy. Our goal is to remind people, including black men themselves, of black men's humanity. Join us every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific, either on YouTube or innerlightradio.com. All right. Welcome back to the Onyx Report, people. Uh, today is, is, is definitely going to be a little treat, an unexpected but happy treat, uh, especially for me, because I get to interview a brother that uh, I've recently uh, come into contact with and I've enjoyed a lot of his work. Um, he, he posts on YouTube and Facebook, I think almost daily at this point. Um, and I'm going to introduce him in a moment. Uh, and so you guys can get a chance to find out why I'm so excited and why I'm, I'm, I'm going to enjoy today. But, uh, you know, as we do before we jump into that, I want to touch on a couple of pieces of current event, a couple of current events that, uh, I think are relevant, particularly to black men. Um, so we can stay on track and, and stay on the same plane in terms of what we're doing. Uh, first and foremost, up on ESPN.com, there's an article posted today entitled, In Lawsuit, NFL Player Says He Was Sexually Harassed, Assaulted During United Airlines Flight. The unnamed player is suing United Airlines, allegedly alleging he was sexually harassed, assaulted, and violated by a female passenger on a February flight from L.A. to Newark, New Jersey, and that the airline failed to properly respond to his complaints. Um, he said, according to the lawsuit, the player and another passenger in the same row made four complaints to flight uh, attendants that the woman was making unwanted sexual advances before she was moved to a different seat. Uh, the two men are, are suing United, the, lo the lawsuit says, because the airline refused to give them the name of the woman, the flight attendants and potential witnesses. And because the airline failed to follow policies to respond to sexual harassment and assault on February on the February 10th flight. According to the suit, the men first alerted flight attendants that the woman was disruptive and belligerent and appeared to be intoxicated. They notified the flight attendants again when the woman made sexual advances toward the NFL player, massaging his knees and thighs. Uh, more than an hour into the flight, the woman's advances intensified, the men allege, and she allegedly grabbed and groped the player. Flight attendants again were notified. The woman continued her advances, the lawsuit says, pulling off the protective face mask the player was wearing and grabbing his genitals. At that point, the player jumped up from his seat and complained in front of the entire plane that the woman was touching him. The player went to the rear of the plane and again notified a flight attendant. That's when the woman was removed from the row, according to the lawsuit. Uh, they didn't name the player, but subsequent articles may. So you might want to keep your eye out for this. And this is very consistent with uh, what many black masculinists have been talking about in terms of sexual harassment and assault that uh, black men in particular. Have, it, it, this is not new. To us, I mean, for the most part, we've been sexually objectified since slavery. So the the idea of sexual harassment being limited to women and not focusing at all on black men, most particularly after the rise of Me Too, is highly problematic and dismissive. Uh, next up, we have a sad report: WWE's uh, uh, Shad Gaspard drowned uh, drowned saving his son from Riptide. This is an article you can find on Google pretty readily, but I've I, you know looked at the one at Deadspin.com. Uh, where basically uh, his body had washed up 
on shore on in Venice Beach uh, early Wednesday morning, I believe. They said he had caught uh, a rip current last weekend while saving his 10-year-old son's life. He was 39 years old. Lifeguard on duty tried to deli deliver a buoy-like device to help bring the swimmer to shore. However, the waves were too strong, and the boy uh, couldn't secure it. Uh, so uh, this is something to look into. Um, you know, as I've been saying, y'all know, for those of you who follow me on social media, I have a hashtag up that I've entitled uh, hashtag sacred black masculine. And basically, I'd like to highlight brothers who are doing what we don't get reported doing. And that is, in this case, um, something, uh, you know, a father would do, which is trying to save the life of his son. And he was successful in doing so uh, at the loss of his own life. So, um, you know, much respect and props to um, Shad Gaspard. So check that out if you get a chance, uh, if you haven't. Uh, next up, we have... Uh, let me see. This is an article off of mirror.co.uk uh, entitled uh, Married Babysitter Who Had Baby With Boy Who Was 13 Is Jailed For 30 Months. Nurse, uh, nursery worker Leah Cordes, now 20, had been out drinking for an evening before going into the victim's room. So apparently a married babysitter who had a baby with a 13-year-old schoolboy um, had showed a, a total lack of remorse, Judge said. Uh, the nursery worker had been out drinking for an evening. She went into the boy's room afterwards where he was playing on his Xbox. There she seduced him and um, became uh, impregnated. She first claimed that nothing had happened and she claimed that the boy had actually violated her. And upon investigation, they found that she was actually the aggressor in the situation. So you can check that article out. Um, and uh, let me see. Next up, we have one off Atlanta Black Star. This is, an, this is entitled Iowa Man's Face Broken in Five Places After Being Assaulted by a Group of White Men. He said, I thought it was over for me. Uh, black community in Iowa is on high alert after a man was reportedly jumped by a group of white men. Darquan Jones was walking to his girlfriend's apartment about 3.25 a.m. on Saturday, May 16th, when he was accosted by three white men. Uh, Jones believes the men were intoxicated he said, when I saw they were stumbling, I already knew uh, something wasn't going to go right. Uh, he said that the men assaulted him and at least one of them used racial slurs during the attack. Uh, he said he tried to run away, but the men were able to catch up to him before dragging him to a creek and attempting to drown him. Uh, so that's something you can look into again, having to do with how black men are perceived, whether we're um, engaging in. Um, just walking down the street, we're engaging in dialogue, hell, sometimes even just sitting in your home. So again, another report to look into. Now, I want to transition today because, uh, as I was saying earlier, I have a guest that uh, I think we're going to have a good time uh, kind of dialoguing. This is a brother who is a prominent attorney in Texas. His name is Dennis Sperling. He's an author. Um, um, and a proud father, among other things. And he's definitely become an outspoken advocate for men, black men in particular, I believe. And we're going to get a chance to kind of find out more about him and his life. I mean, I kind of ran into some of his posts on Facebook and was immediately, um, you know, drawn to them. You know, I appreciate the, the work he put out there. And he actually, you know, goes out his way to advise brothers on, you know, um, different ways to handle situation, ways to understand the world, ways to understand people's behavior, um, and really, you know, kind of forefronts 
uh, the importance of manhood and, and operating in a very upright fashion uh, to that regard. So um, now before we bring him in, I want to play three different short videos that'll give you a snapshot of different aspects of uh, Mr. Sperling's uh, or Attorney Sperling's uh, personality. And uh, I think they're, they're very informative. So we're going to go ahead and start with the first one uh, pertaining to the bank incident. And we'll go from But there. we begin tonight with accusations of racial profiling against the Houston Police Department. And good evening, friends. I'm Dave Ward. And I'm Gina Gaston. A Houston lawyer says he was cuffed and humiliated in his own office building because he is black. Ivan is huge reporter Jessica Lilly joining us live with an ABC 13 exclusive. Jessica? Yeah, Dave, when you see the story, you'll understand why Dennis Sperling, who's licensed to carry a gun, says it's lucky he didn't shoot the police officers. He was here withdrawing cash at this ATM when he ended up in handcuffs. <laughs> Attorney Dennis Sperling is calm by nature. There's no need to argue with these fellows. And calm he was Friday night when he became a bank robbery suspect outside his law office. It was humiliating. I got my cash, my Sperling, who was with an employee, had just withdrawn cash from the machine outside the Southwest Houston building. As he turned around, they were like ninjas coming out of the dark. He says two men in dark clothing were telling him to put his hands up. I got my weekend cash. Thanks. I got my receipt in my other hand. And on him, so a weapon. Sperling is licensed to carry a gun. The men, Houston police officers, took his weapon, put him in handcuffs. I was sitting right here. And on the ground. In a lawsuit Sperling filed this week, he alleges civil rights violations, saying he was racially profiled. The question in is, how did I become a suspect? And blaming what happened on a lack of training. He names the city, the police chief, and the two officers they should announce police officers or HPD whom he thinks should have also just asked a few more questions my response probably would have been officer well I was just getting some money out of the ATM machine and that's my name on the wall right there I'm an attorney and I practice law here in response the city says Sperling and his employee were the only persons at the scene when the officers arrived there is nothing to indicate he was a victim of racial profiling yeah, turns out there was no break-in it was a false alarm, but for Sperling, still so damage. I'm doing this so that my children don't have to deal with this and so that your children don't have to deal with it. And Sperling says the officers did give him back his gun and apologized profusely when they sorted everything out. This lawsuit is filed in federal courts, and the city says they only learned of it when we asked for a response. Live tonight in Southwest Houston, Jessica Willie, 13 Eyewitness News. But we begin... Okay, let's transition on this again. This is a whole nother uh, side to the brother. So this is a uh, an interesting commercial for his practice. Injury law. We'll be more than happy to help you with claims arising from automobile accidents. He doesn't get paid unless you get paid. And as we first wives know, the more our ex-husbands get paid, the more we get paid. So let me help him help you. Call Mr. Sperling at seven one three two two nine zero seven seven zero. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna get into that in a minute, and and the last of the three um, is actually a music video with over what is it five million hits on YouTube. Let's check out check it out.
Attorney Dennis Sperling, uh, entrepreneur, reality show star, author. Uh, welcome to the Onyx Report, brother. And thank you for having me, Doctor. I appreciate it, man. I, I'm a great fan of yours, and uh, it's an honor to be on your show. Oh man, I I was checking out the videos, and you know, I said this before we got on. I, I, I watched the, uh, the you know the bank one, and I said, well, this brother's handling his business. You know, he's operating both as an attorney and a father, and then. Uh, you know, I, I checked the music video second. I said, all right, he, you know, this is consistent. Matter of fact, with your book, you have three volumes, Kindle edition of, of a book you wrote called Rules to Live By, How to Maintain Peace of Mind and Happiness in a Conflicted World. And when I saw even just your facial expression in the video, you looked like you were doing just that. But then I got to that commercial. <laughs> and, and I'm watching this commercial where you, your ex-wife, is basically explaining why people should support your business. And at that point, I was on the floor. I, was oh, yeah. <laughs> I said, I don't think I've run into anybody who's found a way <laughs> to take an ex-relationship and make it work. <laughs> I mean, we got some money, man. We got to pay for these kids. You know, like, you don't need dogs. You know? You're getting your child support, help me make some more money so I can get you some more child support. You might be able to get... Go back in there, get a modification, get some more money if I if I do well. This is for you, girl. This is for you. I'm here to help you. <laughs> you might have to do a book just on that, man. <laughs> man. Negotiate. What an easy, brother. What an easy. <laughs> My ex-wife 
from the ninth ward of New Orleans. It was nothing easy about it. <laughs> but you got it. I mean, y'all, there's something lost though, and, and you got to see the video just to really capture it. Because the, the facial expressions and everything, it was just oh man, it took me off guard. So I, I appreciated that. <laughs> I said, but the, but the range, you know, I really appreciate it in just in your expression. And I think in many ways for, for many black men, you know, much of our lives are conflict. Much of our lives are strife. Much of, you know, much of what we do is against the grain. There's a lot of battling, you know, that goes on and it can be difficult to find peace. It can be difficult to navigate the world, that, especially a hostile world with uh, some levity, with some relaxation. And, um, you know, it looks like you found a way to balance a lot of that and and uh, not shying away from the difficulties either. Because, you you know, you, you're suing uh, the police department. Am I right? Yeah, I sued them and we ended up settling out of court for an undisclosed amount. <laughs> OK, OK. But the thing I realized is I sued them the next day. <laughs> part right there, like it happened the day before and then. They got what happened Friday, and they were sued by Monday. You see what I mean? Goodness! All right. Yeah. Yeah, All right. You gotta you gotta hit them back hard and fast, not just hard. You see what I mean? Absolutely, absolutely. Well, like you know, the way I like to do uh, on the Onyx Report when I interview someone again, I like to start from their their early life and and see how you got to where you were, how you how you developed the perspectives you developed. And the worldview that you've developed in the midst of all that you you do. So, if we can start from the beginning, where where are you from, and what uh, what was the context for your upbringing? Where you know what did you have to, to deal with? I'm from. Uh, I was born and raised in Los Angeles, California, um, in the 1970s, and my first memory was uh, I was on the east side of LA. I was probably about four years old, and I saw my uncle being arrested by the LAPD. Okay. And I, I remember the incident. It was my grandmother had called the police on him because she thought he was he had brought some drugs in the house. And I watched my uncle, and my, my uncle's like six foot nine. Mm. And they brought him outside in his underwear. So, um, and he calmly talked to the police. Uh, they surrounded him, but he he basically just talked him out. And you know, they by the time they finished the conversation, they were smiling and laughing. And he had had his friends bring his pants and his shirt out because he had negotiated with the police with the handcuffs on, saying, man, you know, what are you doing? Why you got me out here? Mm-hmm. But it's, and the thing was, man, and the coldest part about it, and his name is, his, we call him Uncle Slim, but the coldest thing about it is he wasn't upset that they arrested him. Mm. He was upset that they arrested him for allegedly stealing a TV, which wow. was beneath him as a street hustler. <laughs> okay, and okay. so that's that was those are the type of re- people I was surrounded by as a young man. You know, dignity and pride, irre- irrespective of the condition or the circumstances. Mm. And, um, also, you know, growing up in LA uh, in the nineteen, you know, born in the seventies, so obviously I was raised in the eighties, and I actually graduated from Manuel Arts High School, which is on. Uh, Martin Luther King and Vermont Avenue <laughs> in any school in a black neighborhood that's on Martin Luther King Boulevard. Right. right. You know about it. If you Google uh, Manual Arts High School, the first thing you find out is that in 1990, there was a shooting on a campus. 
Mm. And um, they didn't send us home. They sent us to class. Yep. <laughs> They're like, okay, <laughs> it happens. Going back to class. We don't need to bring in any psychologists. Or, you know, not need to clear. It's not a national incident. We don't need ATF. Y'all going back to class. Your classmate got shot. So oh, that was man. and concern that was paid to us. You know, and for most children, when something like that happens, the schoolmates get shot on campus by uh, a gangster, you know, who hopped the gate to shoot him and then leave. You know that that's national news, but this is something I've been dealing with my whole life. So yeah, you know, uh, after leaving manual arts, um, I, by by hook and crook, man, I managed to get accepted to Grambling State University. Mm. Uh, at that point, you know, my grades weren't really that great in, in high school. I'll tell you, I'm proud of the fact that I can tell you that I started with a 2.6 GPA and a mm. 750 on the SAT score. Mm. But you guys. Put it in context. I had helicopters flying over my house every night. Right. I had, I had to figure out what color clothes I couldn't and couldn't wear, and where I was going to walk every day. Mm-hmm. So, so being uh, harassed, set up, shot, um, you know, by gangbangers, you know, mm-hmm. other the community who claim different sets. Now, I wasn't a gangbanger, and I never will hold myself out like that. But being in LA, you can't escape that. That, that taint. In other mm-hmm. words, I lived in a neighborhood and I was one of the people in that neighborhood who had to abide by those rules. And then also I had to associate with those people just because it's necessary. Right. They need to know who you are and you need to respect their rules because you don't want any problems. But again, you know, my family was the one that the gang member was like, leave them alone. You mm-hmm. see, because we had a house full of hustlers. Oftentimes, when we move from the east side of L.A. to the west side of L.A., anybody who understands gang politics understands that we used to live by the Pablos. So mm. my family was associated with a certain uh, group of gang members, but not involved. But then when we moved to the west side of L.A., when I say the west side, I'm talking about the west side of the Harbor Freeway, not like mm. the other side of La Cienega. I mean, we're still in the hood. But so that created a natural conflict because we went move from one hood to the other. I never really had any serious problems. In fact, a lot of the people in the hood, a lot of the gangsters just adopted me because I was a little homie from the hood. And mm. they knew I was smart, I was tough, I would always get down if I needed to, you know. And you know, I was I was I was a product of my environment. You know, I was I was I was pretty vicious, you know, just like the other kids, because you had to be. I was vicious, I was violent. Um, compared to what you would see now. Back then, I was a pretty good kid, you know, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. take put me here in one of these schools, you'd be like, this kid has issues, mm. you know. And on top of that, you know, like many other young black men, I grew up with domestic violence in the house. You got gang violence outside the house. I had a whole lot of other issues that I was dealing with related to my paternity, who was my father, who wasn't. Mm. And so... Growing up, man, I had a lot of conflict, both internal and external. You know, fist fights full of combat. I had a whole single mother issue to deal with. You know, Mm. I had a whole father situation to deal with. The angry stepmother, man, it just got real. You see what I mean? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I probably have endured more trauma as a young man than most. You see? Now, I say all that to say, when I got to grandma. There was no helicopters flying over at night. I had mm. my own room, man. It was probably maybe, it was probably as big as my office, which is only about maybe 10 feet by 10 feet. Okay. But it was my 
the little sanctuary. Mm-hmm. And I went from having a 2.6 GPA leaving high school to having a 3.7 GPA my first semester of grammar. Right. And, it, and this is in biology. This is not some easy subject. So right. once I realized that I could do it, if I had peace of mind and happiness, I've been fighting every day since that time period to make sure that I maintain peace of mind and happiness. So, you know, and just fast forward, went to law school. Once I graduated from law school, there was no turning back. Mm-hmm. Uh, I studied 16 hours a day for nine weeks. I mastered the bar examination, got a perfect score on it in Louisiana, first time. Mm. And that's been 20 years ago. Now, there's a lot more in between we could talk about. But for the most part, man, you know, I'm a father of three, divorcee, you know, uh, I manage my relationships with my ex-wife, and then I also have a son. <laughs> it's Baker, man. That's a whole other story. Lord, <laughs> I didn't know it was going to happen, but it happened, and then she turned <laughs> lady of Jamaica. Turns out she was Miss Jamaica. Oh, <laughs> my, my goodness. Oh, man, yeah, man. You know, you'd be, you'd be surprised what happened when you get a little liquor in you. <laughs> well, let me let me back up a little bit. So you're 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 at Grambling. What what motivated you to go into law? Why law? Oh man, you know, first of all, you got to understand. Coming from South Central Los Angeles, East Side LA, and uh, you know, I've been shuttled back and forth between Houston and, and, and uh, Los Angeles, but for the most part, my upbringing was in South Central Los Angeles. And that was like going to Grambling was the first time I've been around that many progressive, positive Black people. Mm. and having professors that were black that actually cared about me as opposed to professors that were in the school in the hood just trying to get a check. They pay right. more here. They're just going to be here. Right. And then, you know, black male, they didn't really pay much attention to me. They wrote me off. In fact, my, my, at my high school, they were shocked that I got accepted to college. Wow. They were shocked because I wasn't that student. I had... I played football, I hung out with gangsters and thugs, and I'm not talking about these pretend thugs that you guys hang out. I'm talking about dudes, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Jerry, and then the nickname was Maniac. <laughs> you yeah. see what I mean? Yeah. I was hanging out with the felons, and these were my friends, and they loved me because I had heart, and then they also saw that, you know, you know, um, I was smart, you know, so mm-hmm. they low they, kind of protected me a little bit, mm-hmm. and they appreciated me. You know, these are the brothers, these are the men that I grew up with. Yeah. You see, it was my friends that initially made me say, I got to try hard. I don't want to go back to the hood as a failure. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, my thing was, man, when I got to Grambling, I was 100. I wasn't there to play. I didn't have a girlfriend, didn't want a girlfriend. Mm. Didn't, what I wanted to do was study and not go back to the hood. Remember, it was 1992. I'm fresh out the L.A. riots. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I'm Coming out the L.A. riots, we had a thousand people get murdered in L.A. that year, and it could have, it could. I had gotten shot at that summer. You know, wow. I got accepted to college, and I'm like, damn, it's this May. I got accepted to college, but I got to get from from May all the way to August. Wow. Summer in L.A. in 1992. Yeah. I, I, and I end up getting shot at. I almost sold dope with my homeboy Sugar Bear because I was told I need a little extra money. Mm. I'm back. That and said, man, I can't do this. And I don't want to have this on my conscience that I'm one of the people who helped poison our community. You know, so okay. I hacked out of it at last minute, man. You just, as a young black man, you get put in so many desperate situations. Sure. In the hood. You see, and then moving on to Grambling, I look, I was looking back at all that. So, man, I, I went through school like 
no, I'm not going back. It was, it was a traumatic, home was a traumatic experience. It's anybody who's from LA, when you get off the plane, you feel a certain tightness mm. that comes. Because when I'm driving down the street, I don't see the Hollywood sign. I see where that homeboy got shot. That's where, uh, that's where that set is from. Right. Uh, that's my, my cousin bled out on the street after being shot up by some essays from around the corner. Uh, that's my other cousin. Hell, my other cousin, who bled out in his arms as the, as the police stood around and asked him, "What set was he claiming?" Mm-hmm. Uh, this is where I had my first fight. That's where my uncle used to beat the crap out of his girlfriend right there. Mm-hmm. So it's some bad memories for me. You yeah. see what I mean? Mm-hmm. And well, we, a lot- have, we we have a little overlap because in '92 I started college in LA. I grew up in the Bay Area. But oh, I came okay. down to LA, and I actually ended up uh, by by about ninety eight. I was teaching at Centennial High School, so Ooh. I. I, I <laughs> he said, "Ooh, he said, Ooh. Well, I don't even go on the east side." Yeah, it's man. It, my very first day, they were taking the teacher out of the classroom into the hospital because he oh. got stabbed. So I, I, I look, yeah, yeah. You look close to Compton. You got to be careful, man. Be careful, yeah, but man. man. Long story short, man, I don't I don't want to dwell on the past, mm-hmm. but my is intact you know what I mean and and that's why I'm such an advocate for black men because I know what you have to go through brother and even now you know I'm I'm far removed from it but I purposely place myself in a position so that I can hear my brothers my younger brothers my older brothers and then here's the crazy thing man then when you grow up and you get out of the hood you don't get a reward for that you don't get get a a merit badge saying hey he's special Mm. you get an opportunity to deal with the regular life problems that everybody else has to deal with. Mm. So, I mean, <laughs> mm. yeah. Well, listen. Yeah, so, so, so you, 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 you went into law because of, of some of the, you know, the the inspiration you had at Grambling, and because of the lifestyle you led, the experiences you had, uh, you did well. Clearly, you know, you passed the bar. What then? Um. Well, just to back up a little bit, I majored in biology. I had a professor there named Dr. Benny Miles. I, 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 I didn't have a filter when I was in high school, in, in college. I, I just said what I wanted to say. You know, if I saw something wrong, I said I really, the ladies, they wanted me to be quiet and cool like the other black men. I'm like, please, I'm not, please, I'm gonna tell you what I think, okay? I'm, I'm here on ball time. And he said, you know what? You're a good B student. You're a solid B student. I said, he said, but, they want A students to be doctors. Maybe you should go to law school. <laughs> and I said, hey man, he said it with so much love and tact. I'm like, you know what? Yeah, you're right. He said, you, <laughs> like, you know, Southern University has a law school. It's right there in Baton Rouge. I'm like, yeah, all right, you know, didn't feel bad at all. And I'm like, I'm gonna enroll. So I enrolled in Southern, I got accepted. I'm like, okay, I'm in Louisiana. I can go to the Bayou Classic for another three years. Okay. I have- uh, when I got to Southern, man, it was a beautiful thing. I had lots of friends. It was a different kind of vibe, man. I love Southern University. I love Grandland, but man, Southern was a little bit more cosmopolitan. So, uh, and of course, it's professional school, and I just fit right in. And, and man, from there, man, I just I moved forward. You know, okay. I, what ended up happening was, you know, they were, and I'm gonna tell because then after that, I went to Tulane. And if mm. you any know anything about Tulane, that's an Ivy League. University and y'all probably how do you get his black ass into black? <laughs> that was some of my law school professors. How'd you get your black ass into black? They wouldn't even. Explain. But uh, mm. you know, and this fresh out of a uh, uh, un- uh, fresh out of law school, you don't that doesn't happen. 
You know, right. you don't just get accepted. But uh, this plant next door was burning some chemicals. I was the president of the Environmental Law Society. Of course, I majored in biology, so that kind of fit in. Mm. And uh, I end up advocating on behalf of the students at Southern University, you know, and, and, and protesting them burning these this napalm uh, era uh, gasoline in the campus next door. And I made such a big stink about it. It was all over the news. I testified in front of Congress. You know, those those good white folks down at, uh, at, at two legs there. Yeah, he's the type of Negro we need here. We'll oh, wow. Okay. And, and I'm, I, I just want to say real quick, I'm real glad you pointed that dimension out of, you know, the, the work you did out outside of the classroom that ended up complementing your education and your career choice because when I work with students I'm always trying to tell them this doesn't have to detract from your studies if you right. navigate this right you can advocate particularly for black for black folk and it could end up becoming part of what you do so it doesn't have to be separated from that so I appreciate that you you, you brought that dimension in but please continue no well you know I, I just I was afraid because I'm like man you ain't gonna never get a job around here and these white folks you in Louisiana they got confederate flags right here and whatnot mm -hmm. but for the most part, man, I spoke my mind. I was bold. You know, at, at that time, I'd been well made aware of Dr. Martin Luther King and Thurgood Marshall and how they spoke up. Mm -hmm. You see what I mean? The thing mm -hmm. about it is, man, when you deal with that type of trauma growing up like I did, the domestic violence, the violence in the hood, fear is not really the same to you as it is anymore. You embrace death at that point. Mm -hmm. And so when I talk to these young brothers, I tell them, look, man, you've been more 10 years old than some of these Iraqi war veterans. Mm. You shouldn't pray. You're accustomed to it. So yeah. fear enough. You know, don't fear death. Don't fear anything. And so when people say, hey, man, how do you say those things you say? It's because, you know, you only live once. And what you should be concerned about at a certain point is the well-being of your children and your legacy. Mm -hmm. And the other thing you don't want to be concerned about is having any regrets. Mm -hmm. So you, you talked about the, the law practice. You talked about the TV shows, the books. You talked about the music, of which I have six albums. Mm -hmm. I don't know would say, nephew, you got to come in 10 toes down, put all your hustle hand in. You see what I'm saying? Okay. Do everything that you feel you should do. Don't have any regrets in life. Don't be an 80 old man saying, I wish I had done this. Mm. You know, why you can. And as long as you're alive, you can do it. Um, you know, that's kind of like my philosophy, man. And, and with that, you know, you, you stress is a part of life. Conflict mm. is a part of life. The only time conflict ends is death. Okay. You see what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so it's something that you have to learn to deal with, man. Every day I'm in court. Every day I, I probably have about 300 open cases right now. Wow. And, um, you know, and I, I have a, <laughs> it's amazing. God has blessed me, you know, and my people have blessed me. And, you know, I take care of black people and black people take care of me. And I even tell them when they're wrong, you know, mm -hmm. like over the I use my Facebook platform to point out the issues that a lot of brothers are having with the sisters and the sisters mm -hmm. like, you yeah. Maybe you don't like that. I'm like, man, my ex-wife is from the ninth ward of New Orleans. <laughs> from Jamaica. And the fact that I got a baby mama should tell you that I probably don't like black I probably like them a little too much. You know what I'm <laughs> and, and, and so uh, you know, so that's but I have to do that, man, because we have a toxic culture right now and it's mm -hmm. killing us. You know, and it's causing our sons to be raised in, in and emasculated and to be raised with so much anger they want to take it out on each other to right uh we have so many issues man i'm just going on but i would take no 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 that's, that's, that's exactly what i want you know people to know about now now so 
how did you decide to or, or go about setting up a practice and then you know how did you get into this work with black men in particular how did that happen okay well basically man I graduated from Tulane it was a two year program I got out of there in one year because I was like I'm not paying y'all this much tuition so I took every class they offered the first semester every class they offered the second semester Yep. And so, you know, the thing is, once you get that Ivy League uh, degree, you get that stamp of white approval. Wow. <laughs> okay. okay. And then they like, yeah, he, they took it. So I ended up getting the job as a law clerk. But before that, and this is crucial, and I want y'all to listen to this, right? I have a degree. I want This is me, right? I'm 27 years old. I got a bachelor's degree from Gramlin. I got a JD from Southern, a perfect score on a bar examination. I'm a licensed attorney. And an LLM from Tulane and environmental and energy related law. Mm. In October of that year, before I had applied at this place called Labor Ready in New Orleans, because I just wanted a job. Mm. Another thing you guys don't know about is at Grambling State University, while other kids were going to school in class, I was working at the Favrock Student Union Center painting that building. Mm working making six dollars an hour because my parents had cut me off my mom was contributing a little bit of money but for the most part i was working i worked three years from 1995 all the way to 1990 was 94 to 97 mm. i worked as a doing construction on campus so while other kids are playing and hanging out i'm coming out I smell like paint i'm going to class i'm right. dusty i'm pretty you right. see what i mean they right. would send me across town to louisiana tech I'll be over there five o'clock in the morning. I'm working and then have to go to class. Yep. When I graduated from Grambling, I didn't work my first semester at, at, at Southern Law School, but my second semester, I got two jobs. Mm -hmm. I worked at, at the airport and I worked as a graduate assistant. Mm -hmm. You see, I mm -hmm. was told my mama, don't send me no more money. I'm good. I'm a grown man. I can handle myself. She cried and mm -hmm. she appreciated that. You know, but those are the type, that's the type of man I am. Now, when I got to, uh, uh, Tulane, I didn't have a job. I starved. So I had to apply for a, a labor-ready job because even though with all these degrees, I'm trying to eat. You right. see what I mean? Right. I'm humble. I'm always a humble man. This is the thing that I want you to understand. This is what I want you other brothers to get. I'm never too I'm never too big to work for what I want. You see what I mean? And I got that from my grandma. But bottom line is, man, I graduated from Tulane. These people called me up there. They were looking for a secretary to work at this law firm, this personal injury law firm in New Orleans, white folks, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, they said, look, you know, you definitely qualify, but the only position we have is working as a secretary for $10 an hour. And mm -hmm. I said, um, I'll take it. Mm -hmm. With mm -hmm. all degrees, the perfect score on the bar examination, $160,000 in school loans to pay oh, back. Goodness. My first yep. job from the legal career was being as a legal secretary getting paid $10 an hour sitting in the hallway. I mm. did a good job for those white folks. I helped them resolve a $500,000 case in about two or three months that I was there. They hired me back once my law clerkship was over. I did my time with them for three years and I probably would have still been there, maybe. But Hurricane Katrina hit, I lost my house, I lost everything and then I moved back over here to Houston. Wow. And it was basically because of a force of nature that I was forced to start my own, but I had all the skills that I need because I've been watching. Mm -hmm. you know, I'm familiar with that whole theory that spooked and sat by the door. So I've been watching how the white folks did. I didn't interfere with their business. I was just watching everything they did. I absorbed everything they did like a sponge from their bank accounts you need, how you deal with the clients, mm. the staff, everything. And then I took it 
and I moved on. And the thing you have to understand about the personal injury business, it's a money business. Mm-hmm. And you don't have many black attorneys to do that because mm-hmm. they don't win. You know, you don't, you, yeah, you can practice family law. Mm-hmm. You can go on over there and practice criminal law. You can go over there and um, what else do we do? We wills and testaments. Go, yeah, help your mom all get her will set up. But, but this business, they don't let you in. Now, I've been at it for 20 years. And over the past two years, three years, I'm actually uh, since uh, 2017, I've gotten involved to an environmental class action litigation. Mm. So maybe in three or four years, man, I might be worth, you know, you know, a lot more than I am now. <laughs> so oh. put it out there, but my ex-wife is looking. You know? <laughs> yeah, let me be on this. Oh, you're going to be losing my old train of thought. <laughs> but, but, yeah, so, man, so, just, so you're telling us that, you know, the, the legal profession is, is as segregated as many others in terms of where black, uh, you know, attorneys, what they can practice, how well they're received. There's their designated areas uh, is what you sound like you're saying. So you locked out of it. Most mm-hmm. black attorneys don't have the money to litigate these cases. And if they have the money, they may not have the business savvy or they might not have the knowledge you know i they when i was working at that law firm they gave me the worst of the worst cases okay. but see we're in new orleans so they need at least one black attorney to go stand in front of all those black judges you see what i'm saying mm-hmm. okay we're really good at that and you know by the way i love black female judges they love me too i'm just oh my goodness <laughs> man I have got I got a three million dollar judgment in front of a black female judge once. So I think they make the best judges because they don't take any crap. You see what I mean? <laughs> Unfortunately, some of our brothers can be swayed a little bit. I hate to say that, but some of the brothers need a little bit more backbone, in my opinion. You see what I mean? Yeah, yeah, some of the, the male black, judges. Yeah, the black brothers they, they 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 try to play a little they they're a little too egalitarian. You see oh, okay. I'm not talking about all the brothers, but those <laughs> sisters when those sisters become judges. When you get a good one up there who, who will stand her ground, you you can pretty much tell what's going to happen uh, based on the one. You can tell based on the case what's going to happen. Okay. So, uh, but either way, man, you know, I learned, I started from the bottom up, man. My first business, my first law job was a legal secretary. And, and I took that because I knew that's what my grandmother would have done. She used okay. to. She was from Mississippi, man, and she's probably the one that instilled that work ethic in me, man. So I'm rambling. No, no, you're not. That's precisely what I want us to know about. But tell me now, the work with men, how did that start? What what form did it take and, and what did you do? All right, man. So it's twenty twelve. Um, I've been practicing law on my own for seven years. I don't have anybody looking over my shoulder, white folks wondering what I'm doing with the money and stuff. Like I'm practicing on my own, you know. Mm. I'm freshly divorced. I'm hanging out with my homeboy. <laughs> oh, it's a wonderful time. You know what I mean? Oh, horse parties every week. You know what I mean? And, uh, you know, uh, you know, and my homeboy, man, we were uh, college roommates, man. He, uh, and, I, and by the way, I have two children at the time. So I'm a father and some things have started to change and I'm started getting a little bit more serious. I'm like, oh my God, these two little black boys I got to raise. And then uh, my homeboy, I hooked up with him from uh, uh, college. You know what I mean? My college room, we like brothers. I mean, he's from California, I'm from California. I mean, we were hanging, man, We him and his little crew came about two years after I got there, and we just hit it off. And we ended up being roommates, start like brothers, man. You know, this mm-hmm. is like brotherhood that you don't get. You know what I mean? It's my brother. 
and it's 2012, so it's, it's what, 10 years after we graduated or so. And we partying again. Now we in our 30s. We having a good time. We partying, hanging out. He got murdered in, in Atlanta. Wow. And that, that was 2012. And that really made me realize that I can't escape. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It made me realize that I was not through losing friends because I lost several friends back in the 80s and the 90s. Right. Gunshots, murdered by the black men. But I thought I was through. I thought I was through with that part. I thought I had done my rites of passage and then my best friend got taken from me hmm. you know, by a simple robbery. That took like robbing for like $100 or something like that. Right. A 23-year-old boy and a 24-year-old boy. So them two, they going to prison forever and he, he's dead. I had to go to that funeral. You know, right. I had to watch his mom who I love and his family who I love, his dad. And these some Afrocentric people. This is not a gangbang situation. You know, this is my brother. You know that, mm -hmm. and man, that hurt me hard, man. And it made mm -hmm. me realize that if I don't do something about this, then uh, something's gonna happen. You know, something could happen to me and my sons and other people that I love. And then in 2014, I got arrested by the damn police. They pulled up behind me. They had their guns drawn. And this was right after that Eric Garner situation. Oh, and wow. That was November of 2020. That was November of 2014, you see? So now we got all this going together, plus my sons are getting older. We got all these black men getting killed. Trayvon Martin has happened. And I'm realizing that there is nobody that's gonna do anything about this. Nobody cares about the plight of black men. So I set up on that, okay? Then I said, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna move. So okay. I'm gonna to the Dominican Republic, basically. I would, I would be down there. I rented a house, 2016. And I was, I was, I enjoyed myself. I had a beautiful girlfriend that I met. She was sweet to me, mm. but mine was always back up here because I'm like my sons are there. Okay. You see? And my okay. there. And so I just start blogging on my Facebook page about the things that I think brothers should think about in this life, mm -hmm. because I don't think they there was nobody there to teach me these things. There right. was nobody there to who had gotten to where. I, I wanted to be, to reach back and tell me, you know what, brother, this is what you need to do. You need to think about this. This is how you need to conduct yourself when you're with the police. This is how you need to deal with women to make sure you don't get caught up in a situation. This is how you right, need right. the priorities you should have for right now at this age. And uh, it just morphed into something else, man. And now, you know, my, my Facebook page and my books and pretty much my public image is kind of taking over. It has this well, character. And well, let's back up though. Let, let's. I want to. I want to find out what led to the books and how that came about. But the other piece I want you to add to this is, you know, you do a lot of your videos where you, you your sons are present. You yeah. know what I mean. And you talk a lot about, you know, fatherhood and and how to navigate that. But you're also uh, an advocate of, of just showing your sons love right there. And I and and I I, I think that's in, incredibly important because I talk about that a lot. You know, in terms of the importance of that, uh, because many of the stereotypes against black men is that, you know, we don't have any emotions. We don't care for our kids. And, you know, you, you're openly engaging them while having them hit the weights, you know, oh, or, or you know what I mean? Or or di dialoguing with them about life. So if right. you could talk a little bit about how the books came about and, you know, your approach to fathering. Um, well, OK, the, the easiest question, which is difficult is why did I start writing these books, you know? And 
and and why am I so unhappy? You know, mm-hmm. uh, and how did I just have everything that they said I was supposed to have, and I'm not happy, and I don't mm-hmm. have. It's 2010. I'm fresh out of my marriage. Mm-hmm. I have gotten everything in the marriage that the women usually get, plus mm-hmm. custody than most men ever get. I won. I'm wow. sitting in the house that I bought. I got all the cars. I got the money. I got to keep everything in my bank accounts, 401ks. I get to see my kids pretty much whenever I want. But I am broken down, crying, upset, and hurt because I don't understand why I haven't found peace of mind and happiness. Mm. And I look back and I, and I said, I need to figure this out. So I start writing my story. And mm. I start writing the story of the people that uh, came before me because they raised me. You know, and what I didn't realize at that time when I started and what I realized when I began writing is I inherited that trauma from those black ancestors of mine who raised me. Okay. That, that stuff that they had to deal with back in the plantations, mm. the, that, that stuff that they dealt with in their house, that dysfunction, they passed that down to me. Mm. Like COVID virus or something like that. Mm-hmm. And um, I had to be careful that I didn't pass it down to my children. Okay. So figure out what it was, what it was, why, how did that happen? You know, so I began to write my story from that first memory with my Uncle Slim all the way up to the point where I finally accepted the truth about something that I hadn't accepted about my life. Okay. And that was, I didn't know who my real father was. Wow. And I was named, I'm named after a man who's not my father. And I didn't find out who my real father was until 2012. Mm. You see what I mean? And okay. that's me, my whole life. You see? That caused issues, and there are a lot of young black men out there like that. And yeah. then the fact that your mother lied to you and then told you the truth, and then Ooh. the father lied to you and then told you the truth once she found your real father and it couldn't. It creates a lot of mistrust. Sure. And it sure. creates a lot of internal conflict. You see? So along with the physical conflict of growing up in the hood and dealing with domestic violence, I had that internal conflict, which led to a spiritual conflict. So even though I had all the material wealth, I had the degrees, I had everything they said you were supposed to have, I wasn't happy. And that's why I'm, my testament to you all is that just because they, that money and that success and all that, it's fun. You can have a lot of parties. You may love to a lot of beautiful women if you're a dude. You know what I mean? I guess if you're a woman too. You know, but right. It's not going to give you peace of mind and happiness. The only thing that will give you peace of mind and happiness is walking in truth and 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 have peace of mind and happiness doing what God wants you to do. You see what I mean? And see that's and that's interesting to hear because one would think finding out that everything you'd been told your whole life you know, was not true. You would think that finding that out would, would, would traumatize you more, but you're saying it actually helped to, to lead you to some stability. Well, at 10 years old, when I, I was exposed to that truth, I didn't want to hear about it. But by the time I got, well, how was it, 38, 39, the man that I was named after, we had so many issues because the man knew I wasn't his son. I'm, hell, I'm five, six inches taller than him. Okay. And then I grew up in the household with him, and I'm sure his wife knew. So she was kind of, she was a mean stepmother, and her family kind of knew, and it just was problems, you know? Yeah. And then I was out there by my, I basically grew up in a house full of strangers. You see what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it wasn't, it, it was a bad situation. 
And then, but the but the thing is, my option was to return back to South Central LA and possibly get shot. Oh, uh, okay, okay. So it was either you're gonna deal with this mental and emotional abuse, yeah. Or you're gonna go to the hood and deal with this domestic or this, mm-hmm. this outside criminal activity. You see right. what I mean? I right. chose criminal activity because I'd rather be able to shut my door and keep it outside and deal with somewhere where I'm being traumatized every day. You see what I mean? Sure, so, sure. Now, go ahead. What was your next question, bro? Well, I was gonna say, how did you, how did you take? So you, you, you. That was the impetus for the book, for for the book series, right? And 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 I end up. I didn't know the end of the story when I start writing, but I basically wrote myself into following to finding my father. You see what I mean? Wow. It's it's a trick I have, and that's why I just put it in God. That's why the last rule in the book is in volume three is there is a God. You see okay. what I mean? And when okay. you find your path to peace of mind and happiness, you are on God's path. You will receive all the gifts that God has to give you. Mm-hmm. When you walk down that piece, when you see if you're somewhere you're not supposed to be, you're mm-hmm. on the wrong path. The stuff that you pick up ain't for you. That woman, that house, that car, that job, that's not yours. That belongs mm-hmm. to somebody else. You didn't go down the path that you were supposed to go down because you're lying to yourself. Wow. You want to be a doctor. You wanted to be a damn poet. Okay? Mm-hmm. It is that you weren't making $500,000 a year. You're doing this because your mom and your daddy told you you had to do it, and now you're not happy. You're over there snorting cocaine, getting drunk, operating on people while you're inebriated. You're thinking about committing suicide. That wow. is hey, that is not your path. Right. Sam, brother? Wow, and, and everybody else is seeing the car, the house, and all the clothes, and they can't understand why you're not happy. Why are you not happy? Because... Yeah. Material things don't make you give you peace of mind and happiness. Now, fast forward to my children. I am the father to my children that I didn't have. Yes, sir. I, I am everything to my sons that I wish I had as a father. A both fair, respectful, loving father who makes me strong and disciplines me, but also gives me physical attention, like with a hug. And, yes, sir. And, and validation. I'm proud of you and support. See all that right there. I love you, son. Love is nothing. Not, love is nothing. It's an adjective. Mm. Say you love somebody, but you don't do anything showing that you love them. Mm-hmm. You don't love that person. You just talking. Mm-hmm. So we got a lot of fathers and moms too. Unfortunately, you talk to talk, but you don't walk to walk. And kids see that. Kids will grow up and give you your grade. And if <laughs> then you have to judge yourself. Like okay, right. you got a C plus. Well, you know you average. You get an A plus plus on mine. You see what I'm saying? <laughs> well, my son, I constantly talk to him. Look, man, this is what you're going to deal with, man. You're a black man. So you're going to have a lot of women trying to talk to you. You're going to be handsome. Let's watch the weight. Let's watch what we eat. You mm-hmm. get good grades. This is this is what happens if you go to this university. This is what happens if you go to this university. I talk to them all the time, man, because I don't want them to have any... I don't want them to have any internal conflict. Yes, like, sir. Not, not the stuff that I had to deal with. I need to know that father loves them. I need to know them, that I will be there for them as long as I have breath in my body, but I'm not going to spoil them. They're going to have to fight their own fights. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I grew up in a, you know, in L.A., you, you man, you're from Northern California, you know what that looked like? Yes, sir. And yeah, in the crack epidemic, oh, that's where it started, doesn't yes, matter. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And you got kids growing up, their mama's on crack, they come to school with an attitude. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? You box them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, the thing I realized, man, I can love and cater my children and be sweet to them and all this stuff and raise them up right. 
and somebody else's kid could come take them out this world. Yes, sir. So I recognize it was incumbent upon me not just to try to save myself, but also to save these other little black boys and these other black men and help them rid themselves of their conflict and help them find peace of mind and happiness and tell them that, you know what, man, that that dream that they selling you, telling you that you need a Bentley and a big booty girlfriend and a big house or a condo and a six-figure job, that ain't going to make you happy, homeboy. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Now, I'm, I'm proud of you get it. I'm proud of you get that, that MBA from that school, but that might not make you happy. That's going to allow you to make some money mm-hmm. and it's going to allow you to give some time to sit back and reflect, but that's not necessarily going to make you happy. It's not going to put you where you need to be. And the other thing, and here's something I want all of y'all to listen to, no matter how many degrees you have, mm. you can't bury that monster that was raising you from all that trauma under those degrees. Yes, it's, sir. It's going to dig its way out of there and it's going to pop up at the wrong time either in domestic violence, mm. you're going to abuse drugs, uh, you, you're going to do self, uh, you're going to cause yourself self-inflicting pain, you're going to you're going to do stuff to hurt yourself. That's how your mind talks to you. Been mm-hmm. there. You know what I mean? I was being, me and my friend, man, I once I had 12 shots of tequila inside of an hour in Miami Beach at the, at the uh, not the, is it the ocean there? I forget what it's called. But that was alcohol abuse. I was still dealing. Yeah, dealing with the pain. Yeah, man. But uh, yeah. You know, after I got better, man, I lost 100 pounds. Uh, I found my real dad. I lost 100 pounds. Mm. Things were happening, you know. And I can ramble on about that. I really am uncomfortable talking about myself. Well, <laughs> it, you see, the, but the, the framework, and we're actually about to, to close out, but I want to thank you because yep. what I try to do when I interview people, I want especially young brothers to know what that road looked like. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because at the end of the day, especially when you talked about having all the trappings of success and not being happy, that's something that we don't know. And it's that much more traumatizing when you burn the bridges, that you, you burn the candle at both sides to get to that goal. And mm-hmm. it's, not, you know, and you end up, you know, for a lot of people feeling like, well, there's nothing left. You know, right. what do I do? And, right. and so I think it's important that we have these kind of dialogues. But I also think it's important that we understand how successful, how brothers who have found success in whatever way they found it, how they've gone about it. Because I think if you're aware, especially as a young man, of what those different things look like, uh, the more options you have. So we have about a minute. Uh, Is there any closing thought you want to lead the audience with? I'm saying this, brother. if, If I can do it, you can do it. You know, if I can overcome all that I can, overcame, you can overcome all anything in your way. I don't care if you were beaten, abused, sexually abused. If you don't know who your father is, your mother was a, a bad mom. It doesn't matter. You are here because God wants you to be here. My mother tried to abort me while <laughs> she was pregnant with me, took some pills, tried to get rid of me. I am God's child, and you are God's child. You have a destiny on this plane that God wants you to fulfill. And that's the only parent you need to be concerned about. And if you have wonderful parents, God bless you. And I love my parents. I appreciate everything they did for me. But I recognize they're just human beings. Right. And you let go of that anger, let go of that hate. Do what I do. Make music, travel around the world, enjoy your life, hug your children, tell tell people you love them as often as you can. Mm. That's what I do, man. That's my philosophy on life. And, and all I'm doing with my brothers, man, I just want my brothers to live and have peace. We as black men have been through enough in this country. We have been the mules, the, the beasts of burden in this country for almost 400 years now. And you are, you are free now, brother. You are free to live your life 
go where you want to go, travel where you want to travel, meet the women you want to live, do what you want to do. You're free, brother. You don't have to be bound by, by other people's limitations that they impose on you anymore. Absolutely. And I want to thank attorney, author, activist, uh, you know, Dennis Berlin for coming on the show, uh, especially last minute. He, you know, we just connected at the last minute. It was real organic and I really appreciate it. Y'all know how I like to close out. I'm here to tell you, brothers, that we are not criminals by birth, perennial rapists, incapable intellects, man children, sperm donors, child support, wellspring, success objects, walking phalluses, ATM machines, lottery tickets, unpaid bodies. I am here to tell you, brothers, we are not criminals by birth, perennial rapists, incapable intellects, man children, sperm donors, child support wellsprings, success objects, walking phalluses, ATM machines, lottery tickets, unpaid bodyguards, interchangeable stepfathers, child discipline proxies, unpaid repairmen, workhorses, or any other socially accepted dehumanizing stereotype. We are thinkers, inventors, innovators, leaders, fathers, and men. Embrace your humanity, know your worth, and extend your time, attention, and resources only to those who genuinely respect you. And remember, your worth is not defined by meeting other people's narcissistic, selfish, and